One of my favorite ways to unwind is by playing a game on my phone while I relax on the couch. And June's Journey is my new favorite as it combines several of my favorite things, finding hidden items, decor and design, and solving a murder. In June's Journey, you dive into June's captivating quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret while discovering the truth behind the unexplained death of her sister. As you uncover clues, you also get to build your own island estate with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. You get to collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. You get to chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. So can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode contains adult themes and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Courtney Eck. And I'm Sadie Eck. She's actually the host. I'm kind of the co-host, so. (laughs) Sorry to steal your thunder right off the bat. (laughs) It's these sexy new microphones. They make you feel very hosty. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to let people know I was going back over uh, our metrics and turns out aside from millionaires, billionaires, attractive people. These are the people who listen to our podcast. Um, Successful female entrepreneurs. Again, I don't know how they gather this information. I'm just retelling what I see when I look at the back end of our podcast. Um, But it turns out uh, people also, people listen to our podcast are people who like their podcast to sound good. Mm. So uh, we decided to invest. I know it decided to invest in microphones, proper microphones. So here we are. If you miss the way it sounded, um, feel free to employ somebody to come and stand by you while you listen to our podcast, and uh, you know, rub on some styrofoam or beat you in the head with a pillow occasionally. <laughs> Take it to a bird sanctuary. Just play it in there. Um, you know, I was doing the background don't. noise that everyone was missing. Yeah, <laughs> it gave triggered. I have a little PTSD from editing the podcast and hearing that sound over and over again. But anyway, here we are. We have microphones, so ah, feels good. Mm-hmm. Feels profesh. And yeah. uh, aside from that, got nothing to say except for take it away, Sadie. Let's talk about okay. murder. All right, I'm ready to do this. Uh, So today we're going to talk about the murder of Victoria Cushman. Uh, Victoria Elizabeth Cushman, she was known as Vicky, was born in 1960. She was raised in Rhode Island with her mother, father, sister, and two brothers. Her family was described as very close and loving. 
Vicky was accepted into the U.S. Army for a special intelligence position and graduated from the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. She served in West Germany as an operations sergeant. Uh, her job was to direct staff who were doing high-security computer work. She learned to speak fluent German, Italian, French, Farsi, and Spanish. Holy shit. Yeah, man. <laughs> I mean, I would, like, I would take half of one of those languages, please. Yeah, seriously. Sadie and I both took four years of Japanese in high school to show off, and it turns out <laughs> there was nothing to show off because we mm-hmm. can only ask for menus, both of us. That's the only thing we can remember. <laughs> so good for you, Vicky. Jeez, yeah, Louise. That's incredible. Uh, she also loved to paint. Of course she did. Yeah. In 1986, she received her bachelor's with honors in German from the University of Maryland. Uh, After college, she returned to Rhode Island and got a job at Alpine Ski and Sports in Warwick uh, as the warehouse manager. She was described as a social butterfly. According to her friends, her main goal that summer was to find a relationship that would stick. She was ready to get married and start a family. Uh, In the summer of 1989, Victoria was 29 years old and living alone in a small one-bedroom apartment adjacent to the store where she worked. One of her regular customers at Alpine Ski and Sport was a man named Jeffrey Scott Hornoff. Hornoff was a detective and dive team member in the Warwick Police Department and frequented the shop. The two became friendly, and after a few months, they began a romantic relationship. Unfortunately, Hornoff was married and had recently had a baby with his wife. Not good choices, Hornoff. Nope. Uh, Vicky told co-workers about her affair and said she had thought Hornoff would leave his wife for her. Hornoff had other plans, and after only two months, he decided he wanted to end the affair. A co-worker of Vicky's said that Vicky was surprised and angry over the, over the breakup. A few days after the breakup, on the morning of August 11th, 1989, Vicky didn't show up to start her shift at work. Oh, no. A friend and co-worker became concerned and went over to check on Vicky. Before she could get to the apartment, she found Vicky's cat, uh, who was acting skittish and scratched her when she tried to pick him up. Oh, buddy. Sensing that something was wrong, she went back and asked two other co-workers to go with her to look for Vicky. That was smart. Yeah. Uh, I read, too, that the the cat was known to be a strictly indoor cat, so it was probably strange for her to find the cat outside, too. It's good instincts, though, too, to just, mm-hmm. you know, to know that that's unusual enough to go get help before mm-hmm. proceeding. I don't know that. I don't know. I just sort of barrel through things like a <laughs> ball in a shop in general. That's my, that's yeah. the way I approach life, but good for her. Yeah. Uh, all three walked to her apartment. They found her front door was open. When they entered, they found Vicky lying in a pool of blood on the living room floor. Mm. They called the police. I know one day we're going to just, I really am going to just find a story and tell you guys about like somebody's really happy life <laughs> that ends really well. I mean, we've really talked about, you know, we don't have enough of a following to kick this off yet, but down the road, we want to talk, have people tell beautiful stories. Um, yeah. Because there are lots of, there are probably more heroes than there are bad guys in this world, mm-hmm. but uh, this is a story about bad guys and horrible things happening, like Vicky being found in a pool of her own blood. Yes. When police arrived, they noticed Vicky lying behind a chair on the living room floor. She was wearing a pink bathrobe and had suffered severe head trauma. She was still wearing her mouth guard, uh, indicating that she had been woken up by her assailant. 
they found the murder weapon, which was a 17-pound fire extinguisher mm-hmm. laying on the floor next to her body. Uh, it was covered in blood. Yikes. Yeah. Along with the fire extinguisher, they found a pair of yellow dishwashing gloves uh, that looked like they were quickly removed with the inside of the gloves turned out and a smashed jewelry box. Um, they also found an open handbag containing Vicky's wallet with cash and credit cards. There was no indication of forced entry uh, into the apartment. So she knew the person. Yep. Uh, officers noticed scuff marks partway up the outside of the building near a gutter, which was next to the porch. Uh, the flower bed below the gutter had been somewhat disturbed, and a small splinter of wood from the porch railing was found in the flower bed. Hmm. Yeah, a porch roof shingle, <laughs> a porch roof shingle near the gutter was bent. The screen above the sloped porch roof was found open, but no pry marks were found on the outside of the screen to suggest that it had been forced open uh, from the roof. Hmm. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. So they found evidence basically that somebody had climbed up on the roof and then removed a screen and entered, assuming entered a window th- from the roof. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, the screen mesh itself was completely intact, so they didn't like you know cut through cut the mesh. It. Right. Uh, Vicky wouldn't have left the screen out of the window. Uh, like I'd already said, she had an indoor cat and was known to be afraid of the cat getting out and being hit by a car. Mm-hmm. According to police, if someone had climbed up the gutter from the flower bed and entered through the window, their feet would have been muddy. There was no muddy uh, prints found at the scene. Hmm. Uh, nothing in the apartment was... Uh, disturbed except for the fire fire extinguisher and the, an overturned plant um, indicating that there had been no struggle. There were visible items worth value in the apartment that had been left untouched. Robbery was not the motive for the crime. Uh, detectives also found a letter Vicky had written to Hornoff in which she refused to break off their affair and insisted he leave his wife. Hmm. Part of the letter said, quote, if I wait for you to try and work things out, I fear, fear I will lose you. You are saying now that I can't lose you because I never had you, but you're wrong. We had a lot over these past few weeks. Something special happened that can't easily be denied or ignored. I know you are married with a beautiful little boy. I know you don't want to risk losing that, but you admitted that things were not on an even keel at home. It sounds to me that making love with me won't make matters worse. Ah, there's just nothing more painful than unrequited love. I mean, there Mm -hmm. is. Grief, probably grief being the only thing that's more painful than unrequited love. The poor thing. Yeah. The chief medical examiner for the state of Rhode Island performed an autopsy on Vicky's body and found that she had suffered numerous fractures to her skull as a result of repeated blows with fire extinguisher. God. The autopsy also revealed evidence of asphyxiation, which rendered Vicky unconscious before she was beaten to death. There was no sign of sexual assault or defensive wounds. Her, uh, he found that she died as a result of cranial cerebral trauma, resulting in three distinct sets of fractures to the vault of the skull. God, that's crazy. I mean, of all the ways you could kill somebody, beating them in the head with a fire extinguisher is so brutal. <sighs> so police conclude that the assailant was not an unknown intruder, but someone who was known to Vicky. And that either you are a good detective, by the way, Courtney. What? <laughs> and you're a good detective. Oh, you because... said. <laughs> I am? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, he either let himself in or was let in by Vicky herself. Mm-hmm. 
She was ready to go to bed. The bed sheets were found turned back. A bedroom light was on and a book was found propped open with its page apparently saved. Mm-hmm. It was apparent that after having entered the apartment, the assailant had easily overpowered and subdued Vicky without a struggle and then bludgeoned her to death with the fire extinguisher. Uh, at some point, the assailant put on the yellow rubber gloves and then he arranged the fictitious break-in scene and opened the screen above the porch window. Uh-huh. Uh, because the letter Vicky wrote to Hornoff was one of the few things of interest found at the crime scene, detectives brought Hornoff in for questioning. And remember, too, he's part of the police department. Right. He's a detective, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he readily admits to knowing Vicky, but says they were only friendly acquaintances. When pressed by detectives who knew about the affair, he eventually admits to having sex with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hornoff tells police that on the night of Vicky's murder, he went to a party at a fellow police officer's house with his wife, Rhonda, and their infant son. Shortly after 10 p.m., Rhonda and the baby left the party after the couple started arguing because Hornoff refused to go home with them and wanted to stay at the party. Hornoff. So not only is he cheating on his wife while she's pregnant, then he's like refusing to stop partying when his son is, what, two months old? Mm Mm-hmm. Got yeah, pretty young. I'm not sure how old exactly, but yeah, little. Gotta think about your wife sometimes, buddy. Mm-hmm. He admits to consuming a significant amount of alcohol that evening, including beer and punch uh, spiked with hard liquor. Witnesses at the party said that Hornoff was in a jovial mood, having a good time. Uh, he and his brother David, who was also a detective with the Warwick Police Department, left the party between 10.30 and 11 p.m. So he only stayed for like another hour. (laughs) Of course he did. That's always the way it goes. You're like, oh, no, I'm still partying. And then the second your ride leaves, you're like, get me out of here. (laughs) (laughs) So true. And then your Uber won't come and you're hungry and you want fries and they won't take you to get them. And I've never been in this situation before in my life. No, not not speaking from experience. David took Hornoff home, but Hornoff says he decided to get in his own car and return to the party to pick up some cassette tapes he'd left there. Mm -hmm. Sober. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) The cassette tapes can wait, people. If you leave your cassettes behind, don't Mm -hmm. drive drunk back to get them. Yep. Just leave them alone. Upon his return to the party, witnesses described Hornoff as being in a very different state of mind. He was no longer a social and talkative party goer, but rather, by all accounts, he looked pale, dazed, sick, with a blank, staring look on his face. Oh no. Never good. After giving the police his alibi, Hornoff agreed to take a polygraph test, uh, which he passed. There was no physical evidence tying him to the murder, so police let him go. Hmm. Uh, So for more than two years, there was no movement in Vicky's case. The Warwick chief of police at the time had told his major crimes unit um, that after the initial interview, they couldn't interview Hornoff again. Interesting. Yeah, this led the major crimes unit to become fed up, and they brought the case to the attorney general, who demanded that they turn the case over to the Rhode Island State Police. Uh, This happened in 1991. Mm -hmm. When they revisit Scott Hornoff's story, they learn that there are lots of inconsistencies. Uh Uh-oh. So Hornoff's brother David learned of the murder on the midday newscast, the day that Vicky's body was found. Uh, he was aware of the brother his, of his brother's relationship with Vicky, and he immediately called him with the gruesome news. However, when Hornoff arrived at the police station for his afternoon shift, he feigned ignorance and in, uh, inquired about the identity of the victim. 
Oh, no. Uh, when informed by a group of detectives that the victim was Victoria Cushman, Hornoff appeared to be shocked and volunteered that he had been closely acquainted with the uh, victim. Later, when the Warwick detectives mentioned the name Victoria Cushman to Hornoff, he immediately responded that the name did not ring a bell. Dude, come on. Like, they're going to figure it out, you know? They're going to figure out that you know her. Right. Uh, detectives went to Hornoff's home to speak with his wife about the events of the night of Vicky's murder. Rhonda said that she arrived home with a baby between 11 and 1130 and that she heard her husband come home at approximately midnight. With the exception of a brief exit to tend to the family dogs, Rhonda maintained her husband was in bed sleeping beside her for the entire night. Mm-hmm. After the detectives left, however, Rhonda called another Warwick police officer and a close friend of Hornoff's and asked about her husband's travels the previous evening. So she was just double checking. Like she claimed that he was by her, like in her bed with her, with, yeah, in her bed with her all night and then called a different cop and was like, hey, by the way, did you see Mike last night? Uh, Yeah, Scott. Sorry. As soon as I said Mike, okay. I was like, I'm not 100% sure that's his name. Uh, so did you yeah. see? So she basically, it's, it seems suspicious. Yes. Very yeah. suspicious. That she says. She says for sure that she knows he was with her and then immediately calls another police officer. Yeah. Yeah. And says, do you know where he was? Mm -hmm. What was going on? Yeah. No, no good. Um, Right. When the state police interviewed Hornoff again, he said that he had no recollection of what happened that night uh, and he would rely upon his wife's memory. Hmm. David, who is Hornoff's brother, also told a different story. It was his memory that after dropping his brother off at home, he actually saw the defendant enter the house. Um, So, Really, I think what this points to is that what seems like a pretty solid alibi at first, yeah. nobody, you know, there's a lot of difference. It starts to get real slippery as they mm-hmm. push further. Right. Yeah. The state police could find no physical evidence to tie Hornoff to the crime scene. Despite this, they decide to put the circumstantial evidence they had against Hornoff, which was the letter found in Vicky's apartment and the inconsistent stories. Uh, They put that information in front of a grand jury who, in December of 1994, indicted him on first-degree murder charges. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Really Uh, wanted to close that case, apparently. Yeah, apparently. Hornoff was arrested for the first-degree murder of Victoria Cushman. And this was just sort of like a a little aside I read in an article that uh, while awaiting trial, Hornoff had been let out on bond, mm-hmm. uh, but ended up getting arrested again, this time on forgery charges. What? And I know when I was reading that, I was like, well, that seems crazy. Yeah. And then <laughs> the article went on to say that uh, he was sent back to jail. Uh, he was caught using his police identification to get a $1 discount at a movie theater. <laughs> oh, no. Who's the who's the square that ratted him out for that? <laughs> I mean, I mean, if he's a murderer, he deserves whatever comes his way. But yeah. that's come I think on. that the town. Yeah, I think this was a pretty small town, and I bet you people were really mad at him. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so somebody saw him using that and probably got really pissed. But yeah, I thought the same thing. It just seems <laughs> a little extreme, guys. <laughs> Forgery. Yeah. yeah, calm down. <laughs> um, so during the trial, the jury listened to fifty-five witness testimonies. The prosecution relied heavily on the theory that Hornoff led Vicky to believe he was going to leave his wife for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he changed his mind and wanted to break things off, Vicky was head over heels in love with Hornoff and would not take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. 
Vicky's sister, as well as other friends, testified that Vicky was, quote, headstrong, and that when focused on a man, she pursued him with such aggressiveness that it was not un- at all uncommon for him to be intimidated and decide to end the relationship. Mm-hmm. When Hornoff decided to break things off, a friend described Vicky as not only surprised and upset, but more significantly angry and clearly intent in her typical aggressive fashion not to let Hornoff go easily. Mm-hmm. Hornoff knew that Vicky would not be easily dissuaded. He even went to the extent of parading his wife and child through the Alpine retail store in an effort to convince Vicky that she was no longer available to her, That's... that he was no longer available to her. Sounds like a risky, risky maneuver there. Mike, mm-hmm. Mike slash Scott. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the charade didn't deter her either. Vicky passed him a note demanding that he telephone her. Wow. The prosecution claimed Hornoff feared the exposure of the affair would endanger his marriage and his job, so he decided to confront Vicky the night of her death and eliminate the danger. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't be the first time that has happened. Right. Uh, Hornoff left the party with his brothers, and after he was dropped off at his house, he got into his own car and drove to Vicky's. He murdered her to keep her, according to the prosecution, he murdered her to keep her from revealing their affair to his wife. He staged the scene to look like a break and enter and then went back to the party around 1 a.m. to create an alibi for the night. Also wouldn't be the first time that has happened. Right. So after... uh... Because he needed those cassettes real bad. (laughs) It was 1990 Chumbawamba or something. He was digging on that or uh, bare naked ladies. Totes Chumbawamba. So after a six-week... Six-week trial on June 21st, 1996, after nine hours of deliberation, Jeffrey Scott Hornoff is found guilty of first-degree murder and is sentenced to life in prison. Wow. It's just, uh, it's always amazing that, you know, like our last week's case talking about Aliana DeFries and, you know, this guy who'd gotten plead out of a million different cases and got away with horrible things over and over again. And then this guy, they barely have any evidence and still they're able to convict him. It's just Mm -hmm. incredible. Yeah, it really is. Following his conviction, Hornoff pursued several appeals and motions for a new trial, all of which were denied. Uh, In 2001, he requested DNA testing of evidence found at the crime scene. Mm -hmm. A window screen and rubber dishwashing gloves were examined, but the results were inconclusive. A stained bandage, which was visible in the crime scene photos between the rubber gloves, was unavailable for testing. It was unknown whether it was never preserved as evidence or lost and destroyed. So they didn't do the DNA testing to begin with, or was it too early to do that type of testing? Do you know? I don't know for sure. Sh- I assume they didn't do any DNA testing. In a, you know, so we're in 2001 now, right. so probably... I'm a, in the mid nineties, it was still too early. Right. Would be my guess. Right. Still, that's crazy. Yeah, Cause I'm sure the cops would have been happy to have a little bit more. <laughs> to to, to with. Yeah. 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 Um, but then to lose a bandage, you know, that was stained with probably blood. I don't yeah. know. Anyway. Um, as ever, as far as everyone was concerned, justice had been served. Hornoff spent the next six years in prison telling everyone who would listen uh, that he was innocent, but no one would believe him. Mm-hmm. Bet you are, buddy. Uh, but all of that changed in November 2002 when a man named Todd Barry showed up to the Rhode Island State Police headquarters. And guess what he did, Courtney? He had returned the cassette tapes. 
<laughs> he confessed to Victoria what? Cushman's murder. <laughs> I mean, I knew that. So that was just, I had to react for the sake of the audience. And did you like how I tried to pretend like Hornoff was a bad guy the whole time to really derive Hornoff. home the conviction? <laughs> Called, uh, it's called storytelling people it's called suspense building <laughs> experts at it no that is crazy yeah. that's crazy mm-hmm. it never yeah he just wants him to confess why um well I'll tell you a little bit about todd barry please do so barry was a 45 year old carpenter with a wife and two young children when he turned himself in uh i read that the kids were two years old and six years wow. old yeah um <laughs> i'm just gonna go for it i when i read that i um i thought about how i have a two-year-old and a almost six-year-old and that maybe that's why <laughs> uh, that's my- oh it's your mom humor i get it you're like please take me away my wife and my kids are driving me crazy <laughs> oh god it's <laughs> so terrible listen i love those boys but I, yeah, faced between raising two small children and the solace and solitude of prison, it would be a tough choice. <laughs> well, just like you would just maybe, no, I'm not going to go there anymore. <laughs> anyway, we can, we can cut nope, that out. Nope, even the mom jokes, pretty good. Uh, so he had, <laughs> uh, he had no previous criminal record. Um the year before Vicky's murder, he and Vicky had casually dated for a few months before they broke things off. Mm-hmm. Um, so after 13 years, his guilt for murdering Vicky, along with the fact that an innocent, innocent man had been convicted for his crime, became too much for him to handle, and he decided to confess. That is so crazy. And it goes against everything that you generally hear about parenting, you know, <laughs> mom jokes aside. Mm-hmm. It's like most people would do anything to protect their young kids and he's sort of doing exactly mm-hmm. the opposite because his, his guilt mm-hmm. is so overwhelming yeah uh so barry's defense attorney said quote you know in your heart that he's doing the right thing but on the other hand you have to counsel him that he has no legal obligation to come forward you have to tell him if you do come forward you will spend time in prison you may lose your young family do you under understand all of that yeah it's just wild um, it's wild mm-hmm Barry understood and replied, I either do this or I go jump off the Narragansett Bridge. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm that type of person. I, there's just no way I could no way I could live with something like that. But most people aren't that kind of yeah. person, especially if somebody was actually it's not just a cold case, like somebody else was actually convicted of your crime. There is a very mm-hmm. slim chance they're ever gonna figure out that he you know, they're not gonna pursue that case unless he gets innocent innocence project or somebody involved, but That's wild. Yeah. Uh, He went on to say, I can't live with myself any longer. At first, the police thought it was a joke and didn't believe his story. Uh, But as he brought forward details only the murderer would know, they realized the mistake they had made. Wild. Um, So Barry told police that on the night of August 10th, 1989, he had been out at the bars drinking heavily and smoking marijuana. His memory of the night is a little hazy, um, but he remembers being oddly determined to see Vicky, though he hadn't been to see her for months. He went up to her roof and got into her apartment through the window, although he could not recall if he tried the door. She was calm when he woke her. Uh, Their relationship was such that he often showed up late at night. 
Barry talked with her in the living room. Vicky told him about her affair with Hornoff, and he said that that made him angry. Mm. While they were arguing, Vicky's cat got out of the window, and according to Barry, he said she threatened to sue him if she lost her cat. Um, he said that this caused him to flip out. He jumped on her and started to choke her. He grabbed a jewelry box nearby and hit her on the head with it. After she fell to the floor, he bludgeoned, bludgeoned her to death with the fire extinguisher. So pretty much sounds like it was just pure jealousy. Like he was probably still holding a torch and she was moved on to this other, to Mike. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm just going to confuse the shit out of everyone. Scott. She had moved on to Scott. Yeah. And I wondered too about um, drinking. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. This is just speculation, but um, it seems like. He was definitely not sober. And, you know, some people fly into fits of rage when they're drunk. So that could be part of it. Yeah. I don't, um, I don't think it's that hard to get to that place. You know, if you're somebody who, if you're an adult male in the United States, you probably have some level of, you know, like anger, aggression, rage, especially in the 80s and 90s. I know it's a crazy broad stereotype, but, you know, that's, that's a time when boys were raised to be ultra aggressive and really masculine. And, you know, who knows what his upbringing was add alcohol and then add, you know, a woman bragging about a new relationship. And this is what happens. It should not happen. You should raise your boys to respect women and their choices and their boundaries. Um, but unfortunately, and deal with their anger and yep. Constructive mm -hmm. ways. Um, but unfortunately that's, not how it generally works. And that's why there's so many true crime podcasts out there. Uh, so after spending a few days comparing Barry's confession to the evidence, police arrested Barry on charges of second degree murder. He pled guilty and received a sentence of 30 years. Uh, he is now 63 years old and will be released from prison in 2026. Oh, wow. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, what went, what went wrong. <laughs> Yeah, kind of everything. Yes. <laughs> um, so from the very start of the police investigation, there were lapses, inconsistencies, and flagrant violations of procedure, beginning with the handling of the crime scene. Mm -hmm. uh, the police did little to preserve the scene. They were described as, uh, quote, swarming her apartment. At times, there were more than 10 officers there at once. And remember, it was a very small one-bedroom apartment. Yep. Police failed to detect drops of dried blood on the window screen. They failed to retain Cushman's bathrobe for testing, and they failed to compare a fingerprint found at the scene uh, with Cushman's own. I read that they um, spent all this time, the police uh, during the investigation spent all this time comparing this fingerprint to people that she knew and people in town. Uh, and then eventually they got around to seeing if it was her fingerprint, and it was. <laughs> oh, you're kidding no <laughs> such amateur hour it sounds like right. i mean you yeah. know police forces do the best that they can but i'm assuming this is probably the first homicide case that most of them had worked on and so they just yeah I have no idea it. But... yeah yeah it just seems like if i was gonna write a police <laughs> like Man a manual, manual start yeah. yeah you would compare the fingerprints with the victims first yeah um, the police collected Vicky's Rolodex, but didn't contact any of the people listed. Uh, Todd Barry was one of the first cards inside. Dude. Um, you guys. 
I know they never they never talked to Todd Barry at all. They never interviewed him. The jury knew Hornoff had lied initially about his involvement with Vicky. They'd also uh, they also had transcripts from his grand jury testimony in which he revealed that he had had other extramarital affairs, and this wasn't uh, this one wasn't really important to him. Mm-hmm. They allowed their dislike for Hornoff to sway them when there was no real evidence to lead uh, to his conviction. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was, uh, it was another happened to be American justice that was done over this uh, case when they interviewed one of the jury members and she pretty much flat out said that she just really didn't like him. And he was so casual about the affairs that they, it wasn't hard for her to then take the leap from cheating on your wife to murder. Yes. So I think that, oh, and she was really upset. He didn't take uh, the stand to defend himself. And she thought that that was really telling that he was guilty. Well, she hasn't listened to very many true crime podcasts and you know <laughs> that you don't take the stand in your own defense. It mm-hmm. almost always backfires. And I'm so surprised. I mean, I understand it's so common for police departments to just kind of latch on to one suspect and then just drive that, you know, drive the whole case toward that suspect, regardless of, you know, any other evidence or testimony or whatever. But he was a detective. So Mm -hmm. I don't understand. I would think it would be the opposite. I think that they would have covered up anything that would have led them toward him. Right. And there was a little bit of that within, you know, like his chief of police didn't want him to be re-interviewed. And, but yeah, I don't know. You know, it, it seems that's one of the things that surprised me about the case too, is that, you know, it's usually the opposite that the cops get get away with it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe he was a jerk. Maybe he had enemies. Maybe he slept with somebody's wife who was higher mm-hmm. up or who knows, but yeah, who knows? it's pretty surprising. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the, the other things I read a lot about was how guilty he seemed about the affair. He was so worried about the affair coming out that he, um, they were taking that those signs of guilt that he was mm-hmm. guilty about her murder. Um, and that's really what a lot of the, the police latched on to was those, you know, the guilty behaviors that he was exhibiting. Yep. When it turns out he just didn't want his wife to know that he'd cheated on her. Right. So pretending like he didn't know her and being a, mm-hmm. like playing dumb in general backfired because mm-hmm. it looked like mm-hmm. he was, yeah, that totally yeah. makes sense. He was trying to get away with it. He also decided to be interviewed, um, without his attorney present. Oh, no, no. Yeah. And uh, he, he said, well, I, you know, I was a detective. I thought I could just get in there and tell him what they needed to know and I could be done. But he kept every, I think every time he'd go back and not have his attorney with him, uh, which ended up really backfiring. So look, my biggest fear, my actual biggest fear is false imprisonment. And I've listened to so many cases of false accusations and two things get you put in jail. One is a bad attorney. So be really careful in vetting your defense attorney because if they don't do their job, you might go to jail. But the number one thing is talking to the police. Don't ever, mm-hmm. ever, ever talk to the police, even if you're guilty or even if you're innocent. Just don't do it. You, you don't have to get a lawyer. If they brought you in, <laughs> you're probably on some level of a suspect. So just don't do it. It's not right. worth it. Yeah, you yep. should know better. But I could see why he wouldn't. Right. Yeah, for sure. So five days after Todd Berry's confession on November 6th, 
2002, after six and a half years in prison, Scott Hornoff was released. Uh, he was shocked when he learned someone had come forward and admitted admitted they were guilty. I mean, I, as someone whose biggest fear is false imprisonment, it would almost be worth it to feel the happiness that you would feel <laughs> to find out that somebody had come forward and confessed to the crime that you were in prison for. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, yeah, that, and I don't know if it would really be worth it, but <laughs> it would not be worth it. It's my actual biggest fear. But yeah. that the elation of finding that out, I just can't even begin to imagine how happy he would no. be. Yeah. Uh, his defense attorney, Joel, Joel Chase, said, quote, he knew he was innocent, but I can't imagine anyone could fathom the real killer would just step forward. During his time in prison, Hornoff's wife divorced him and he was left financially ruined. Uh, when asked about his time, yeah, when asked about his time in prison, Hornoff said, quote, you might try to imagine a cop in prison. I was double bunked with some of the most disgusting men you could imagine. Oh, God. Yeah. Hornoff sued both the city and the state and federal court, alleging that the police violated his civil rights through errors in the murder investigation and by not preserving or considering evidence that would have cleared his name. Yeah, no doubt about it. So the city of Warwick agreed to pay Hornoff $600,000 and gave him a work-related disability pension worth, uh, at the time, $47,000 a year. Uh, wow. And this was tax-free. Tax wow. Yeah. Much of the settlement went to his ex-wife to pay uh, back child support. Oh, my God. Really? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean no, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. I was like... <laughs> yep. Uh, but also... So this was just... Go ahead. I forgot. I forgot about the affair. Sorry. I was like... She divorced him because he was in prison. No, she probably divorced him because he had multiple affairs on her. And that's well, even if or somebody. Yeah, and even if you divorce someone, they still have to pay child support. I know. You know it's, it's still just felt a... like a, like, oh, no, but no, oh, no, he, those kids deserve that money. So yes. forget what right. I said. I'm not a parent. I don't, I don't know how this works. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And it, it, there's a lot of interviews about this, this, this uh, settlement in particular and talking about how she was going to get a large chunk of it. And he, he just kept saying, that's fine. You know, I'm fine with giving the money to her, right. to, you know, to my children that, that it seems right. Yep. Um, but it turns out that Rhode Island is one of 17 States that does not compensate the wrongfully convicted. Oh no. Yeah. Um, so he got the settlement from the city, but he's not going to, you know, at this point he wasn't going to be able to get anything from the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so Scott Hornoff decided to get that changed. Oh, wow. Yeah. He worked on legislation for years. In May, 2019, the Rhode Island House Judiciary Committee unanimously approved legislation to pay $50,000 a year out of the state treasury for each year spent in prison. Wow. Um, yeah, quote, innocent persons who have been wrongfully convicted of crimes who through no fault of their own have been uniquely victim- victimized and are deserving of consideration and remuneration for the miscarriage of justice. Yeah. As somebody who is afraid that they will get falsely imprisoned, I'm probably going to, because why would I be afraid of it? <laughs> and I would be really comforted to know that once my conviction is overturned, I would be compensated justly for mm-hmm. the time I spend in prison. It's yeah, I just think it's crazy that, that it took to. Yeah, it took this long for him. Yeah, it's nuts. Uh, yeah. 
Um, so Hornoff remarried and had a daughter with his new wife oh, good. Uh, and was able to maintain a close relationship with his older children. Good. You know, and when I was writing this story and trying to figure out how to wrap it up, I was thinking a lot about how um, sometimes the hardest part with the false imprisonment stories is that the victim often gets lost in their own story. Yep. I was just thinking that. And so we should never forget that Victoria Cushman lost her life at just 29 years old. She never had a chance to start a family that she so desperately wanted or to grow old. Yep. Uh, What happened to Scott Hornoff is unfortunate and upsetting, but it doesn't compare to what Vicky endured. Well, and I think it's one of the things that scares me the most about crime is that is the ripple effect is how many people it actually, how many lives actually get ruined because of one stupid drunken decision. Like you couldn't pull your shit together enough to not murder somebody when you were drunk, dude, really. And then you got too mad about your, yeah. Yeah. And good for you for confessing. I mean, thank God, but still what a piece of shit, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of the articles I read, um, they almost were feeling a little sorry for Todd Berry. God, uh, you know, I can understand. It's easy to look back and say, well, he, he lived for 13 years after the murder uh, and didn't commit other crimes and was an upstanding citizen and blah, blah, blah. But you know what? He still murdered her and absolutely needs to pay for that. Yeah. No, it's, you didn't, you, yeah, you just ruined so many lives in that moment. Yep. And I don't think that Todd Berry would want anyone to feel sorry for him. I think he did exactly what he knew was the right thing to do and is paying for the time, you know, for her murder. I would agree with you, but also too little, too late, dude, all the way around, you know, it's just that fragile thing that people have where, you know, your hurt ego or your, you know, whatever that lives inside of you that can't be contained when you have a couple drinks of alcohol kills somebody. And then you sit on it for 13 years while somebody else takes your sentence. Like you are, I, mm, that is a weak personality. It just really upsets me. It, and it causes so many problems, you know, and, and I'm sure he's like, quote unquote, like a, he's a good dude, but you know, it quote unquote, very much quote unquote, like, oh, he's a good guy. He's I'm not, not like, guy. Take, no. like take accountability, you know, like if you have those feelings inside of yourself, go see a therapist get a little medication. You know, there's so many ways to avoid like the catastrophic mm-hmm. results of your actions. And so, um, I hate him and I'm really sorry that that happened to Vicky. It's so senseless and so mm-hmm. avoidable. Yeah. And she was a total badass and should still be alive. She should be alive and she should be working at the UN. She should be an ambassador or a spy or something amazing. Cause that's, you know, she took her summer job working at the cool ski shop to be 29 mm-hmm. years old and have some sexy affairs and stuff. And then I'm sure she was going to go on to do phenomenal things with her multiple language skills and art skills. And it's just so sad. So sad. Yeah. And that all got snuffed out. Exactly. So that is the story of Victoria Cushman. Good job. I hate that story, but I do love a twist. So it's a complicated relationship we have with true crime and with doing this podcast because the downside is somebody has to die to do this, but uh, that's it. There's just a downside.
but I do love a twist. I'd be happy to stop doing this if it meant that there was no more murders. I would really be okay with that. Look, (laughs) I'm just, I'm just in it for the free HelloFresh that I'm hoping to get down the road. So that's it. That's it. (laughs) Um, so while we're waiting to be sponsored by HelloFresh in the meantime, to get us to our ultimate dream goal, you can follow us uh, at on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at They Will Kill. Uh, you can check out our website, theywillkill.com. You can email us at theywillkillpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, please rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can find us on all sorts of other platforms as well. Absolutely. And thank you, as always, to AJ Bergantz for our beautiful theme music that we still love and still get chills when we listen to. Yep, we sure do. And remember... You're never going to be able to tell tell our voices apart, so don't even try. No, we keep forgetting to mention that mm. we have the same voice. Yeah. I can't believe we're, what, six episodes in and we haven't brought it up. Our mom also has the same voice, mm-hmm. so we just look forward to... Uh, special guest appearance by Mama Eck and you'll really I'm the one I'm Courtney I talk the least Sadie talks the most we have the exact same voice so it doesn't matter imagine if people think that it really is just one person (laughs) (laughs) having a conversation with ourselves (laughs) moving from microphone to microphone we love you guys so much thank you so much goodbye Goodbye. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.